the challenge now is where do we go next? Because plastic is so good, but it lasts too long. It doesn't go away. This is the magic of the material. So the challenge is what do we do with plastic in its second life? Literally, how do you reincarnate it? We don't have this right system to clean it, recover it, make use of it and reincarnate it in its second life. And that is the super challenge we have today with the use of this material. How do we get the second life, third life, fourth life? As soon as we got the fishermen and the village chiefs, we got them together, put up some nets, cleaned the waterway. Within the day, the monks could say, now don't put your garbage bag in that river because you will have bad karma. And that had a huge impact. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you organizations that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful organization employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Doug Woodring, founder and managing director of Ocean Recovery Alliance, bringing creative surprise to environmental engagement. He's based in Hong Kong, but he joins his call from San Francisco, California. Welcome, Doug. Hi, Vidya. How are you? Thank you for having me. I am well. I remember listening to an interview in the mid-90s where a couple of environmentalists were talking about how individual actions, such as using reusable plates, bottles, etc., would have minimal impact on climate change. When I heard that as a conscious consumer, I literally fell off my chair. But the truth of the matter is that actions of major industries, such as energy in the petroleum industry, for instance, or cement in the construction industry, have and continue to have a bigger impact on climate change and global warming than individual consumer habits. Let's talk about plastics, since that is your forte. You know, it's interesting because plastic is one of those materials that came to us 50 or 60 years ago, and it is so useful for moldability, durability, lightweight, color, performance, that it's in almost every product we use, every business we have, every thing we do. And of course, in the older days, we used to use glass and paper, metal. But when you look at the environmental impact of those materials today and the consumption of the planet with the populations we have, if you needed that much paper, if you needed that much glass and its weight to move it around as we do for the products we all want to use today, the environmental impact would actually be many times worse than what we now have with plastic. If I may interject, uh, plastic was invented as a solution to reduce dependence on natural resources, such as, you know, silica and glass or... In fact, originally it was made to replace billiard balls that were made from elephant tusks. That was a good replacement because we don't want elephant tusks being used for billiard balls or any other things. But today we've lightweighted ourselves to the lightest we can be, almost, with packaging. 
So lighter weight in transportation of goods when it's packed in a plastic instead of a glass or a metal case means that fuel cost is less and that has an impact. The challenge now is where do we go next? Because plastic is so good, but it lasts too long. It lasts in our environment too long. It doesn't go away. This is the magic of the material. So the challenge is what do we do with plastic in its second life? Literally, how do you reincarnate it? Because if it's not reincarnated, it will be pollution, and that's bad for all of us. So let's take a step back. What are the harmful impacts on the environment, on our planet, during the production of plastic? Let's break down, because plastic production has its impact, consumption has its impact, and disposal. So let's start with the production. Generically, broadly, on the production side, you have refining. Actually, that comes after extraction. So if you're going to use a fossil fuel, you need to extract it from somewhere. That's oil drilling, gas. Then you need to refine it. That includes chemical mixes, some of which are toxic, and binding agents and different properties to give it the performance it wants. Right now, based on our global plastic production, the slice of the carbon pie that plastic production accounts for is about 7% of the carbon footprint. Transportation in airplanes, I believe, is 3 or 4% as a comparison. So plastics impact on global warming and greenhouse gases is comparable to cement production? Yes, it is equivalent to cement production. But the estimates based on both population growth and the benefits of plastic and so many new products and packaging are that the growth in plastic could be 15% within 20 or 30 years of a footprint on just the raw production and refining. So that's a big number. So let's move on to consumption. What are the harmful effects of consumption? I mean, it is valuable in many, many instances for protection, making gloves, making protective gear for rain boots, for industrial use. But in many other instances, they have bad impact on the health and the planet. Right. So I think there's two factors there. One is the immediate health. In the old days, when plastic and chemicals were maybe not so well known and people were microwaving their food a lot, the potential for leaching of a chemical into food, for example, in a bottled water. In fact, even today, if you are in a hot country and the bottle itself is not of good quality and the bottle might have been in a truck waiting to be distributed to a retail outlet or a store, you can really taste the difference of water that's been sitting in plastic for a while. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to kill you right away, but obviously something is happening there with, with at least flavor and maybe something else. Now, of course, in today's technology, they've gotten rid of all of the really bad stuff that might harm you uh, in the food industry. On the contrary, Food waste, as you know, globally is a very big issue for both climate change and food waste in general. About 30% globally is wasted. And packaging for food is actually very necessary to keep out the moisture, at increase the shelf life. And it goes rotten or raw within a week. 
then we all lost along the way. You know, we grew it, we uh, raised it, we used water, we shipped it, and then it becomes rotten, and then it actually becomes methane, and that's 23 times worse than carbon. So we do want to keep it last as long as we can. And in fact, we believe that fixing this problem with plastic pollution is almost more complicated than CO2 and climate change. We don't have this right system to clean it, recover it, make use of it and reincarnate it in its second life. And that is the super challenge we have today with the use of this material. How do we get the second life, third life, fourth life, such that there's some value there in whatever form so people are not throwing away and not burning it? In fact, burning is something that people rarely talk about. And some estimates say that 40% of our world's waste is burned open pit in your backyard. That causes three major issues. Immediate respiratory issue, carbon black, which is a big absorber of heat for global warming. And of course, the toxins in the plastic and the chemicals getting burned, go into the sky, into the air and get rained into our food system. Rice patties, farming, agriculture, fishing, so there's a whole cycle there that we don't want that to happen. So that's the consumption side of the problem of this material. We talked a little bit about disposal with burning pits and reuse. So are there some kinds of plastics which are easier to repurpose, reuse, recycle as against another? Yes, very good question. So there's seven main families of plastic. PET, plastic bottles, is family number one. HDPE, which is like your soap containers and jugs, maybe number two. You can look at the bottom of many products and you see a little triangle. It says, recycle me. It's got a number in it. So people, recyclers know which type it is. But the challenge is that there's over 40,000 types of plastic in those seven families. And this is why it's very more complicated than carbon and CO2 in some aspects. Because if you take an analogy of reconstituting an omelet, if I make an omelet for you with egg, cheese, ham, peppers, mushroom, and you say, Doug, thank you for the omelet, but please put it back into the original content because I want those pieces back in whole again. That's kind of like what recycling is. That's the challenge of recycling. So when you have seven types of material, they're not all the same melting point, not all the same color, not all the same chemical makeup. And you have to sort those and get them into their families. Technically, every single type can be recycled or reused, but it doesn't work at low volume. So if you only have two straws and two plastic bags, the recycling person is not going to care about trying to get your material and put it in his machine because there are no economies of scale. The challenge is how do we get all of those types of material back into one family and one type and maybe one color. So the machine and the entrepreneur and the inventor and the user can, can make use of that in the right way. And that's the challenge of us. We all have to unscramble that egg and get it back into the original format. Some plastics are therefore easier, plastic bottles, HDPE, some thin film, but a lot of things are just difficult because they're spread out. Think of carpet bombing, not a nice word, but imagine the scattering of all the little packages and pieces and types all around the world in our communities and our houses that you can't easily aggregate together, especially when it's thrown out with food waste. So if you mix food waste with plastic, then plastic is not recoverable. 
very easily. What we're trying to promote in very easy context that the world can understand is sort by wet and dry. And the wet is the organic, the dry is everything else, paper, glass, metal, plastic. It's much easier for anyone, anywhere, by hand or by electronics, to sort that dry material and recover a lot more for recycling. So that's what we're trying to push. Though there are seven types of plastics in the triangles, there are also multi-layer plastics, which complicates it. Yes. Because you need to use different plastics and maybe an aluminum foil for the purpose that you have to use. Imagine a candy wrapper or a you know, lace potato chips bag. So those are even harder to dispose, reuse, and repurpose. You're right. Those still are within the seven types of material unless there's foil. But the challenge, as you know, is separating those few layers into their own families. So one of the pushes around the world is to standardize materials for packaging. If the materials are more standardized, at least the recyclers know they can get volume and the same types of things in an easier manner. But I believe actually on one of your previous podcasts, you had a very interesting speaker, Rahul, who uh, can make use of those multi-layer packages by compressing them in a very strong manner. And I know others who have tried this, and it, it's a brilliant way to make tabletops and furniture sidings and decorative material, and it's extremely sturdy and even waterproof because the way it's made. So there really are ways you can use all of that, even if you don't pull it apart and separate it from the four layers, but we're just not doing it very well. The name of his company is Recron Panels, and that is Rahul Chowdhury, that he makes 100% substitute for plywood. So imagine wherever you see plywood, you can now use his panels. And that's a creative solution, which he is marketing and commercializing. Let's talk about Ocean Recovery Alliance. What exactly do you do? So we touch many, many stakeholders. We try to raise awareness, we educate, and we want to bring solutions. So some say, oh, Doug, you're an activist. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not an activist because that has a connotation of agitating and telling people they can't do something. But I'm an actionist, and we like to get out there. You, you mentioned creative surprise. We like to do that where you get a group, whether it's a corporate, a bunch of kids, maybe a government, and you get them engaged and involved. They don't necessarily know what they're getting into. Of course, they sort of know the program, but they don't see the vision maybe that we have that Mm, once this works, it's, it will show many others that this can be done. And so then they get excited. They say, wow, my employees loved volunteering for that. My kids at the school loved being part of that. My government now wants to work with you more. This was so great. And it sort of gets them engaged and pulls them in. So we do work that um, can inspire kids to, to do more, as you said at the beginning. Sometimes people are, feel that one person cannot make a difference, but we tell the kids to have pride. Go out, just pick it up, just pick it up, just pick it up. When they see a kid just go do that and proudly do it, then it makes people think, hmm, why is that young person doing that? Why shouldn't I do it? That's on the education and, and awareness engagement side. We do work with um, companies, 
packaging, we're trying to drive recycling systems to be more efficient and better and think of how to collect material in a better way overall to prevent material from getting out and giving it a second life so it doesn't become garbage. But won't the impact be more if you target municipalities, if you target large companies? Do you influence policy? So for instance, you talked about like a universal plastic packaging for say an industry or particular kind of product. Try to do that. And we have done that in certain circumstances. For example, we were the first, I believe, in the world to create a methodology for plastic footprinting that's very much like carbon footprinting. This was in 2010. We were probably eight or nine years too early for that topic, but it allows companies and municipalities to self-reflect, almost like look themselves in the mirror, and understand how much plastic they use in their system, how much they recycle, how much they recover, could they reduce material? And until you do that self-calculation and a baseline calculation, you don't know what to circulate. And now circular economy is a very big thing. So this can be used across all countries. You don't need taxes, bans, or legislative changes. Legislative changes often are very cumbersome, very costly. There's lobbyists who go against it. But this is a model that can be used very quickly by anyone. Then do that, you get employee engagement, you get consumer engagement around what you're doing. You can talk more proudly about knowing what you are doing and say, well, you know, we do have to use this, but we also reduced 15% of this other thing. UC Berkeley, for example, was the first college campus in the US to undertake a plastic footprint disclosure. That's what it's called, Plastic Disclosure Project, PDP is our program for the campus. So they looked at the labs and the cafeterias and the classrooms and the dormitories and did a baseline analysis of what happens every month. And because of that, they now have a very progressive, no plastic use and single use plastic policy at the campus, probably better than most in the whole country. Talk about the methodology. What does it entail in terms of resources, time commitment, and the process? The methodology, there's a fine line here because when we came out with this program, people were not talking about plastic pollution 10 years ago like they are today. It was hard to get into a company to get them interested. They said, we know we use plastic. We don't want to know about it. We don't want to be seen to show our numbers. But fast forward to today, people are more willing to get engaged. They are more willing to show what they're doing. And this is exactly the same with carbon. And in the early days of carbon, big energy companies didn't want to give their carbon footprint because they knew they had one. But after two or three years of becoming used to it and then proud that they're starting to find ways to reduce it, they started announcing and declaring their own carbon footprints. And that plastic is going through that similar trajectory. So what I say is, it's a fine line of getting too complicated and difficult for companies and being too simplistic. So a lot of our questions have to do with management and the thought process of where does your material actually go? A lot of companies or municipalities will write a contract for a waste hauler or a recycler, and they don't know where it actually ends up. They just sign an agreement, say this person comes every once a week, takes my things away. He or she says they recycle, and that's all we know. 
So this process helps you find out where things go, helps you think about it, helps you think about how much recycled content you could actually put in your products. Of course, you look at your inventory list if you're a company, a, a retailer, or a hotel, a hospital, and you understand, okay, I'm, I buy a thousand pieces of these units, I buy a thousand of these, each one has eight grams of plastic or you know, 22 packages, wh whatever those numbers are, and you can start to get a feeling for how many bottles you use, how many forks you use, how many uh, computers you might have, and what are you doing to recover that material? Maybe nothing, maybe you're doing great things already. Maybe you got a tender out to buy a thousand chairs for the school or the government offices, and you never thought about putting in recycled content into that tender request so that 20% of each chair could be recycled content. We don't ask for those things. We'll never get the demand to pull through recycling from the recovery side into the products again. And in our plastic disclosure project helps people think about that process with some metrics. So in our pre-recording conversation, you talked about even its application in the cosmetic industry. Yes. So Lush Cosmetics, uh, who are very aggressive and engaged in all things ESG, environmental social governance, they undertook our PDP, Plastic Disclosure Project, about seven years ago. And they looked at all the different product lines that they use, their packaging. They do a very good program of bring back programs for their plastic pots and their facial and uh, hair products. But then they realized, oh, we have glitter. And glitter is in some of our cosmetics. And when people wash their face and the glitter comes off, it runs down the drain. And glitter is made of plastic or uh, little bits of foil. And that's essentially microplastic. And therefore, that's something you could design. And they did right away design it out of their product. So you could say, we're not doing glitter anymore. The volume that they save might not be, uh, you know, thousands of tons a year, but it's very substantial because if you design that out of your one product line and you're a big company like Lush, that makes a big impact in one move. And this is what the PDP is meant to get people to think about. It's changing the mindset. It's streamlining your thought towards a more plastic-free product environment and life. The main objective, we don't say you can't use plastic because that's almost impossible, but let's use less virgin plastic. The more recycled content you can use, the better, because that is the great sucking sound and the pull that is needed in the industry to show that there's demand for the use and the recovery that unscrambling that omelet and egg now has value because I can now sell it back to Ikea or the table maker or the shoemaker, whatever it is. And of course, there's not all plastic can become the same thing again as it was, but it can be something else. It can be part of something else, like you said, the plywood. Concrete, great new example. You can take the multi-layer film, all the mixed dirty plastic that doesn't get used in normal recycling can now go into high strength, lower weight concrete products. And this is a whole new company and industry that I also know. It's called Resonate is the brand. And it's just coming out as very high tech developed. If you took all the plastic created in the world every year, 
370 million tons and you threw it into the world's concrete consumption in one year, it would only account for about 3% of the total concrete used. Imagine that. So we could absorb everything into that market, create a lighter weight product, better for CO2. In fact, going back to that discussion, recycled content is 1.8 times better or removes, avoids that much CO2 compared to virgin. So the more recycled content you've got, the less CO2 you've used because you didn't have to do that drilling and extraction, which you asked me about at the very beginning. Most of the plastic, like you just mentioned, is petroleum-based, but there are bioplastics. So is the impact of bioplastics similar to petroleum-based plastics in the same three parts that we talked about in production, in consumption, in disposal, and reuse? Great question, and it's complicated. <laughs> We're in the complicated phase of that. But we promote the use of all biomaterials because in the long run, it's better than petroleum-based. Now, it also depends what kind of plant-based feedstock you're going to use. If you're going to use something that is very water-intensive and you have to grow it in a big farm, it might not be the best. But the world is progressing, and there are new companies that can make plastic from algae, which from wastewater, seaweed. Uh, so there will be new ways that you can make it that are not so taxing on the environment in terms of land and water. We had one guest, W Cycle, he made it out of waste sugarcane. Right. So waste sugarcane is good. It's a bit like palm oil. Some will say, well, how'd you get the sugarcane in the first place? You have to grow it, a lot of water, but it made sugar. People need that, so let's use the waste, as long as you're not growing it just for the purpose of the plastic. Now, the other challenge is some, and the recycling community also doesn't always understand this, or the consumers, biomaterial can have two uses at the end. Is it compostable? It can be composted, or it can be recycled. This is where there's a mess in the... Uh, labeling and the knowledge and education because a recycler won't want to have a compostable batch of material go into his long-term recyclable product because that might dilute the effect of his material. So we have to keep the compostable material in one place and the bio-based recyclable material in another place. And many of that bio-based recyclable can be used with petroleum-based recyclable. The properties are the same, but a lot of people don't understand all of that. So then the question is, if it's bio-based and your city doesn't have an industrial composting machine. And I mean to Jack to say that often when things say they're compostable, they're compostable in an industrial setting. It's not that you can throw it in your compost barrel in your backyard. It will take 10 years or 20 or more to... That's correct. So this is what some of the debate about is that if my city doesn't have an industrial composting capacity, then my city shouldn't have bio-based, biodegradable forks, knives, and plates, and, and other items. But it's a bit of chicken and egg. If you don't have those materials in the market, you won't have someone build a composter. But most likely, you won't have a composter built unless there's the material. Now, if you threw that item in the bush or the water, of course it might take a few years to compost, 
But when you compare that to a petroleum-based similar item, which might take 100 or 400 years to degrade, we would argue that one or two or three years is much, much better than 400 years. So we should still be striving for the innovation to get to the bio-based materials. Less toxic, potentially, less chemicals. They can't solve every problem today, but it is certainly a new space that will see people say the cost is too high. But again, that's economies of scale. If we buy more of it, bigger volume, then some of those costs will also come down. So you also have an app. Talk a little bit about that app. So our app is called Global Alert, and it allows you to report trash hotspots anywhere in the world's waters. Really meant for waterways and coastlines, not the middle of the ocean, because if you report it in the middle of a body of water, the tide changes, the winds come, and it's not there anymore. But if it's on the coastline or a river, or you see it running down a creek, this is like ways for traffic. It allows community reporting with three photos and a GPS point to say, hey, here is a big area of trash. Someone needs to fix it, do a cleanup, or ideally on a creek or river or waterway, put up a boom or a net or a catchment device and manage that every day or every week or every month so that there's continuous recovery and that at least that waterway is now clean. So if you think of the Earth's rivers like the arteries, and the arteries go to the heart, and the heart is the ocean, and plastic is cholesterol, and plastic's going through the arteries, which is the river, the easiest place to catch it is in the artery before it gets into the heart, the ocean, because the water goes one direction downstream. You can stop it so you know anyone downstream is not a culprit. It is the upstream people. Oh, where did it come from? What is it? Can it be recycled? Can we prevent it? And it gets people focused on this. And the amazing thing is, it's a bit like the broken windows theory. It came out of New York in the 70s when there was a lot of crime. A social scientist said, if you fix all the windows, repaint the houses, take away the graffiti off the trains, will people behave differently? And the answer was unresoundingly yes. They become more proud in their home territory. They're not going to be the first to break a window by throwing a rock through it. They're not going to be first to get caught spray painting on the wall. They take pride in their neighborhood. If you clean just the surface water of river, you create the same dynamic. I love how you bring to our listeners simple analogies for everybody to relate, understand these complicated topics. Thank you. Thank you very much. Some people say, what keeps you going? And it's to see these things work once you put them into action. So when we did this in Cambodia recently, we cleaned the river. It was right in front of a monastery. The monks were there with a big smile. And they said in Khmer, you know, we always tell people you can't throw garbage in the river, but they don't believe us because the river was always dirty. It's like the broken window. As soon as we got the fishermen and the village chiefs, we got them together, put up some nets, cleaned the waterway. Within the day, the monks could say, now don't put your garbage bag in that river because you will have bad karma. And that had a huge impact. And in fact, the local government, because we cleaned it within one week, made a new fine for the community. If you put your garbage bag on the river side of the road, so it might fall in, you get a fine. 
And so just because we clean the surface area of that water, it brought pride into the, into the neighborhood. The village chiefs started working with each other. They never worked together before because the guy's net upstream impacted the guy downstream. And so now the guy, they had a nice friendly challenge and said, well, you, you have to keep your net clean because that means I have to work harder on my net if you don't do the, your work up there. So they all work together. They all put it together that the river actually goes to the lake, which they all fish from, but they had never really put one plus one plus one plus two together. And once that happened, now you build trust. What's really missing in the recycling industry around the world, even in a city like San Francisco, Hong Kong, London, is that the recycling doesn't work. People see all the bins get thrown into one truckload after they did all their nice sorting, they spent their time. And then people put their hands up and say, why did I just spend all that time and it's just going into one truck? Because people don't trust the system. They don't know what is happening. But if you clean the river, even on the surface, then you can have a dialogue with that community and say, okay, now you're all on our side. You see we mean what we do and we say what we do. Let's talk about sewage or let's talk about the effluent or let's talk about something a bit more difficult. And now you have the running room to be able to make that next discussion or maybe charge five cents a day to clean the wastewater a bit more. But this is a great way to start. And that's what Global Alert is meant for. It's in Spanish and English, partly funded by the World Bank, and anyone can report anywhere in the world. What are the challenges that you have in implementing this app? That's a great question. We've had reports in over 40 countries. It's been running for five or six years now. But the challenge is that we are not linked to every municipality on the world on our app. So if you report it in India or in Philadelphia, the local mayor or water services department in that city will not get a global alert message on his phone and say, hey, you should go down and check that creek. We don't have that facility. We need the local stakeholders who care about their watershed to put the dots together link the dots. If a school of eighth graders goes out, you only need a few people to do the reporting. You don't need the whole world to do this. If you had a few eighth graders or whatever age on a river reporting even twice a month, that regular visual reporting data is now something that most water managers probably don't even have, or a minister of tourism or a mayor or an NGO. And if you then couple those together with someone who can take action. And this is a great way for pre-cleanup activation because someone can ride their bike or their boat or go jogging, cover five kilometers of river, take the photos and say, okay, we need 20 people. You guys go in this part. Here's the GPS point. You guys go in this part. Here's that. And you do a cleanup. But we're not able to touch every single municipality and the people who govern them with our app. It's up to them to do it. So we just want people, we can teach them how to use it, and then they can put a big screen up in their meeting with the Rotary Club or the Minister of Tourism and say, here's our hot spots we just reported on this river or creek. We'd like to work with you to go clean that or put up a boomer in that. And by the way, once we clean it, we can reload some photos and show that it got cleaned and put up a green pin instead of a red alert pin. And then you can also show how the change happened. And on the back end, you can measure how many hours, people, types of material, volume of material, 
weather pattern. It's very important because there's seasonality in some waterways. So in the flood season, it may be harder or easier, or there's more trash or less trash. But until we get that seasonality picture in our head with this data, you can't then make strategic decisions to maybe put the boom up every three months in the fall when there's more or less rain. If you had to put a number on the amount of plastic that Ocean Recovery Alliance has prevented from reaching the landfills with your app, with your PDP and other initiatives, how much would you guess that number to be? Wow, that's a great question because there's a lot of different pieces there. So on the ground, one example and one small river in Samrep, Cambodia, you know, I know we pulled out over 25 tons of material in that one case. Geez, that's a lot. One example. Imagine if you could do that in 3,000 creeks around the world, which really could be done within one month. That could be some really good numbers. Uh, that's why this is extremely scalable. With the PDP and UC Berkeley and the way that they change the dynamic, if you get some reductions here and there and avoidance and stopping using something, it's probably 1,000 tons over the last you know five years. Uh, Lush Cosmetics taking away the glitter might not be huge tonnage, but it's very symbolic and very effective on their messaging and clearly getting away in one move. We also help Watson with water in Hong Kong. It's one of the biggest bottled water companies in Asia. Got them to change their bottled water from 0% recycled content to 100% recycled content in one move. That often doesn't happen. They often will maybe put in 20% recycled content. So that one move saves 75 million bottles every year of virgin material not being used. So all the plastic that you collect do you have somebody who can use that plastic? Would it be a raw material for somebody that you potentially connect? This is uh, the objective. We don't physically do all these collections ourselves. We try to inspire it and motivate it and allow it to happen. So in a place like Cambodia, the main first thing is if you get something out of the water and contain it, even if it goes to landfill, that's already much better than it was. It's not in the water, not polluting, not bad for tourism, and you're not burning it. The next step in all these cases is now what to do with it. And the technologies are now starting to come, and they're not necessarily big, giant machines that only a big city can afford. The plastic into concrete additive, as I said, would resonate. The plywood alternative example you said with the thin film, a lot of these things can be localized and to make use of mixed dirty material. Asphalt is another area which is coming. Of course, you could make energy. Some don't like that, but in some cases, it's an effective way to get rid of that material and at least get a benefit from it, which is energy, maybe in the cement business. Of course, normal recycling is what you want to do. So we try to inspire and connect the dots for these solutions of the collection of the bad stuff to find a place, a new home and a second life with some of the new technologies that are coming out and being propagated. But that's the challenge today. We need a lot more of those little machines and little solutions to go everywhere, not just one city or one town in a country. So how did you end up starting Ocean Recovery Alliance? What was your journey? 
I grew up in California, a lot of outdoor activities, and I was a competitive swimmer, and I did windsurfing, diving, you know, all the water sports. And when I moved to Asia many years ago, the amount of plastic and pollution in the waters there was significantly higher than what you see in the U.S. waters. And so it was through the motivation of sports, you know, sometimes people walk through a city and a town and they don't get to see the water on a daily basis and they don't really appreciate what's happening above it or below it, the surface. And I think it was that inspiration. I was diving in Palau at one time in the middle of really the Pacific Ocean, crystal clear water, and there were plastic waste suspended 20 meters under the water. That's uh, 60 feet. And uh, said, where is this stuff coming from? We're not even near the island. And that really uh, was the, the wow moment that made me think. I'd been thinking about it for a while. But So we did an expedition in 2009 to study the North Pacific Gyre. And we brought Scripps Oceanography with us on that trip, which allowed for real science to be done around the plastic in that part of the Pacific. And that really sort of verified that there was an issue out there because we got plastic in every single sample that we took over a three-week trip. And that led us to some of the projects that we do today, global thinking on how to solve the problem in a cross-border manner since uh, so many companies import and export materials and products. It really has to be done in a cross-border global fashion, not just only domestic and citywide cases. Ocean Recovery Alliance is a nonprofit, and it has to rely on grants and donations for its programming and existence. So who are your major funders? You mentioned a World Bank-funded part of the app. Who are your major funders? Right. So we've worked with all kinds of groups who like what we're doing. Sometimes it's individuals, sometimes it's family offices, sometimes it's corporates. Corporates donate for different programs, whether it's, you know, maybe for education and a children's program, maybe a way to also get their employees and their staff out doing things in the community. Also multilateral institutions, like you said, UNEP or the World Bank, we've done a few research projects and programs with UNEP, and I was training companies and municipalities during COVID on Zoom uh, in Thailand and Malaysia with a UN program there that was partly funded by the Swedish government. But we're a small group, and um, living in Asia, finding funding for regional and even global programs is quite a challenge because the funding atmosphere there is uh, much more closed and non-transparent with family offices and it's it's hard to break into sort of bigger pockets of foundational money which don't exist in the way that they do exist in the u.s and europe so it's always a challenge but people like what we've done and so somehow we always seem to find some money to fund the things that we're trying to work on but the more we have the more we can do and the faster we can run and a lot of the things, you know, are now proven. So we just want to start replicating them. What are your next steps? What do you want to do with Ocean Recovery Alliance? Well, you know, as I mentioned, the, the PDP and the Global Alert program and apps were developed and thought about and created 10 years ago, and they were too early. But now the ocean world is really looking finally at rivers and creeks and waterways as the source for a lot of material particularly when you have 
big rains and storms and floods, a lot of that washes into the sea. But there didn't used to be that connect between the freshwater world and the saltwater world. So the use of Global Alert now could really be a dynamic, great opportunity to at least stop the flow of materials out of our waterways. And we're hoping to do some new bigger projects in countries with the use of that app. Also, our program in Cambodia, we're expanding to new villages around the Tomasat Lake and also could be replicating that into Indonesia and a certain place there. And it can really be done anywhere else where we find the right stakeholders who can uh, see what we've done and maybe modify it a bit for their own jurisdiction or community. And so I think now it's uh, really about scaling things. We've proven that some of these things really work but now how to get more and more people active and uh, excited and proud about being part of some of these in their own territories. Wishing you all the best. Thank you so much, Doug Woodring of Ocean Recovery Alliance for coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you very much, Vidya. Great to talk to you today. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, produced and hosted by Vidya Ayer. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. Click on the subscribe button to be the first to learn about our latest episodes. We recorded this podcast in Buffalo, New York. Theme music was conducted by Tatum Gale. Roseanne Korean is our marketing assistant. Constant Thurman of Cora Insights is our nonprofit consultant. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pasricha. This is Vedya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.